Good morning, St. George's. Jesus Christ is risen. Amen. Open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's the passage that you heard read, and it's the one we're going to look at this morning. As you're turning there, let me just say that Christians celebrate Easter every year as one of our highest holy days. There are so many different reasons why we cherish this day. One of the reasons is that on that first Easter Sunday, absolutely everything in the cosmos changed. Let me tell you what I mean by that. The first thing that changed is that from that first Easter Sunday forward, dead people do not remain dead. The second thing that happened, Jesus Christ was vindicated. He offered his life as a sacrifice for our sin on the cross on the Friday, and God raised him to new life on the Sunday to show all of us throughout time that the Father had accepted the sacrifice of the Son. Your sins have been forgiven, so we celebrate Easter. The third thing that changed is that God in Jesus Christ, by raising him to new life, has canceled all of the sin for all of God's people for all of time. And all of these truths are captured in just these couple of verses that we're going to look at this morning. That the head of the serpent in the Garden of Eden has been finally crushed because of Easter. Now Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth and He's addressing clever folk. He's addressing the kind of person who feels drawn to Christian ethics and Christian morals and Christian worldview, maybe even enjoying secondary benefit of living in a society that's still largely culturally dominantly Christian. The sort of person who is clinging to all of those external trappings of Christianity with their benefit in this life, but without an empty tomb. And Paul's clear caution to the Corinthians is this. You may have a lot of things. You may have a life that is getting better because of peripheral Christian values and going to church. But an Easterless Christianity is a powerless Christianity and no Christianity at all. The empty tomb is the centerpiece for Christians. You remove that one piece, you remove that one important fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. You remove that, and the whole thing tumbles over like a leaning Jenga tower, gone. And so, this morning, perhaps this sermon is for you. You're someone who has been hovering around the Christian life. You've been dipping your toe into the waters of Jesus, right? But still hedging your bets. Trying to glean all the good stuff that Christianity has to offer, but sort of skating around and dancing around this one fact. 
Was Jesus, in fact, bodily raised from the dead or not? Well, the invitation today is to take the plunge. You see, this moment of Easter Sunday, the empty tomb, it is the moment of delineation. And how you deal with this resurrection of Jesus will determine whether or not you are a Christian. It determines so much more, and we're going to unpack all of that. We just are coming to the end of Holy Week, and we've tracked with Jesus last Sunday as he made his way into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey while the crowds were waving. Palm branches and cloaks, that's right. Jesus showed himself to be claiming to be God's Messiah and forever King for God's people, a Savior. Jesus then went to the cross on Good Friday and was executed on an instrument of Roman capital punishment, killed. Did you know that there were other people right around the same time as Jesus who rode into Jerusalem on donkeys to the waving of palm branches and cloaks? Did you know that there were other people at that same time who, by all these same outer signs, tried to make the claim that they were God's forever king? There was one fellow named Judah Maccabee, and Judah Maccabee led what then became later known as the Maccabean Revolt, where the Jewish people rose up against the Roman Empire. And Judah Maccabee, he knew Zechariah 9.9, just like Jesus did, and so he wanted a signal to the Israelites that he was claiming to be God's forever king and Messiah and Savior. So you know what he did? He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Jesus wasn't the only person to ever do that, to make that claim. And certainly, Jesus was far from the only person to ever be killed on a cross. It was the primary way that Romans dealt with political dissenters. They nailed them visibly on a cross for an excruciating death so that all people could see, and shame would be brought on that person and on their family. Jesus was not the only one killed on a cross. So what makes Jesus special? How do we know that he was the forever king who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey? How do we know that his death on the cross was not like the other thieves, not even the two that he was crucified beside. Because God raised him from the dead. You see, other people did the other stuff around Holy Week, but Jesus Christ is the only one that God raised from the dead. And so God vindicated him on the Sunday. God put on full display that the Father had accepted the sacrifice of the Son for your sins and for mine by raising him to new life, an empty tomb. On a day like today, on Easter Sunday, we are reminded that we're playing for all the marbles. Because what you do with Easter Sunday will determine how you behold Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord, King, Messiah, and Savior. Because God raised him from the dead. You see how that works? And so Jesus 
is Savior because he delivers us from the wrath of God. On the cross, he effectively purchased our pardon by the shedding of his blood and bearing the wrath that was ours because God raised him from the dead. Listen, I can't put too fine a point on this. We can't overstate the importance of it. Everything in our Christian faith hinges on the resurrection. What we think of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, to be sure, for many, it is the resurrection that is a stumbling block. It's been fascinating over the last couple of years with the growing darkness and overt wickedness and evil that we see in our culture on the rise, how many people see that evil and they're repulsed by that evil and they are orienting their lives and searching for something that's good. Have you noticed that? And so many people through that process have started coming to church or maybe even become enamored of the outer trappings of a Christian life. And it's helping their lives day to day. But then you make a bold claim like the resurrection. And that's where a lot of people scramble. Few who come to church regularly would ever outright deny the resurrection, right? They wouldn't say, yeah, that just didn't happen. No, no, we're far too educated and clever and nuanced for that. We say things like, well, it doesn't really matter if it actually happened. What matters is whether or not you live as though it actually happened. We try to be clever. But Paul writes this letter to the Corinthian church some 20 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to address just that issue. See, there were people in Corinth in the church who denied the resurrection of Jesus. They functionally denied it. They denied it through a general apathy. Or they just tried to play fast and loose with it. They tried to have a Christianity without a bodily resurrected Jesus and an empty tomb. And so this morning, as we jump into our passage, you're going to have to decide. Was Jesus bodily raised from the dead on that first Easter Sunday? No more fence setting. It's time to jump in. Bible's open to 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verses 12 to 13. Paul says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Verse 13. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Look, Paul is inextricably linking two things together here. He's linking Jesus Christ and his resurrection on that first Easter Sunday to every Christian man and woman's hope and rock-solid confidence in their resurrection on the last day. You see that? He's saying these two things are inextricably linked. You can't have one without the other. He says, look, if there is no resurrection of Christians on the last day, then Christ wasn't raised on Easter Sunday. He says, if Christ wasn't raised on Easter Sunday, then you and I have no hope beyond the grave just to become worm food. He links the two together. 
And so what Paul is launching into with this first line of rhetorical questioning is simply this. I want you to consider what happens when you as a Christian man or woman breathe your last breath? What happens? Well, if you say that you breathe your last and then you are resurrected from the dead bodily and taken to glory to be with God and reconciled to your God and Father for all of eternity, then you must believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead on the first Easter Sunday. See how that works? You can't have one without the other. Paul takes these two and holds them closely together. You see, Paul wants the Christians in Corinth and here in Burlington to know this. That Jesus rising to life from the grave changed everything. On that first Easter Sunday when Jesus rose to new life, God put on display that Christian men and women can have hope even in the face of the deepest despair. Because Jesus Christ was raised to new life by God, um, you and I can face whatever hardships, whatever losses, come what may, confident that just as surely as God raised Jesus from the dead, our life is leading to life and not to death. That the final word for every Christian man and woman is no longer the grave. But we too will be raised. Hope and despair. That's what's loaded into Easter. Do you think about it? It sort of makes sense. On that very first Holy Week, when Jesus and his friends were going through that week together, you know, they started out the week with great expectations and great hope that Jesus would deliver God's people from Roman oppression and they were going to get to be a part of it and they were all excited and they're like, man, we're all in. We're never going to leave you like Peter. If I have to die, I'm not going to leave you. And then they come to Good Friday and right before their eyes, they witness something that could only leave them despondent and despaired. They see their friend hanging and dying on a cross. They see the very one whom they had left everything to follow, apparently coming to naught. Well, no wonder their hearts were gripped with despair. And listen, friends, maybe this morning you can identify with something of that. Perhaps your life holds something that is marked by loss, Perhaps you, from time to time, glimpse despondency or despair. And in the face of those moments, where do you look to find meaning? Where do you look to find hope? Where do you look to find something that is bigger than the present loss or bigger than the present despair, something that can justify your very existence and give meaning to the suffering and the evil? Well, apart from Easter, there's nothing to be found. 
There's nothing that will suffice, nothing big enough to deal with life's greatest losses. To be sure, you might find moments of meaning, you might find moments of purpose and hope through good things, like conscientiously pointing your life towards the good. You can find some meaning and some hope in that. You can find some meaning and some hope in deep relationships with your family and with your friends. You can find some meaning and some hope in serving others. But all of those good things will at some point fall short. Because apart from the Easter story, apart from the Easter account, no matter how good those things are in your life, someday you're going to die. And so that gnawing existential angst just gnaws away at you all the time. Apart from the truth of Easter, nothing will suffice. But here is the Christian hope put on display in the empty tomb. That all around us, the world is wasting away. We are surrounded by death and decay. But death is no longer the final word from God. Not for his good creation and not for his people. This is why, as a Christian pastor, I can stand by gravesides without falling apart. I can stand by gravesides with this deep confidence, clinging to the promises of God. This is my hope, and it transcends life. It transcends the grave. Jesus Christ is risen. The empty tomb shows us that Jesus Christ was raised, and so too will be all of those who put their faith and trust in him. So when a Christian man or woman breathes their last, it's not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end, but it's the end of the beginning. That's what C.S. Lewis said. And Paul says right off the top here that that hope that we have for our resurrection on the last day, for death to be conquered in our lives and things to be set right. He said, the only reason you have that hope is because of the certainty that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Verses 12 and 13. And so before we move on, I want you to just consider this for a moment. How does the empty tomb shape your life? What does Jesus being raised from the dead have to say to your present struggles, to your losses? You see, herein lies the Christian hope. We look to Easter and we see at the greatest moment of the greatest miscarriage of justice, when wickedness had reached its maximum point and was carried out and meted out on the very Son of God, that not even that moment was beyond the scope of God's redemption. Let me say it differently. When we see the empty tomb, we know that for God's people, everything works out in the end. Another way, because of Easter, the very arc and trajectory of the cosmos has changed. 
It's altered. It used to be that life led to death, and death only led to more death. But because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, now death leads to life. It's a different trajectory. The cosmos have shifted. It means that everything works out in the end. And Christian man or woman, it means if things haven't worked out for you, then it's not yet the end. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Your good God and King will raise you up on the last day as well. And he can redeem every loss, no matter how bitter. I like the words of Sam Wise Gamgee to Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings, right? He says to him, Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? Well, Christian man or woman, because of the empty tomb, the answer for each and every one of us is yes. Jesus Christ is risen. Everything sad will ultimately come untrue. We're no longer on a trajectory that leads to death. We are on a trajectory that leads to life and eternal life. It'll all be redeemed. And so the empty tomb becomes the new lens through which the Christian man or woman sees their life and their world. The old lens that you had was that death just circled the bowl and spiraled out of control and led to more death. You look at your world and your life through the lens of the empty tomb and you see that glorious eternity awaits for those who belong to Jesus Christ because he's conquered the grave for you. So this is the first thing we see. Paul linking the resurrection of Jesus with our resurrection and with our hope. Verses 12 to 13. Look at verses 14 to 19. He says, And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. Look, we like to look back in history and we play this game called the myth of progress. We think that we are so much smarter than people who lived 2,000 years ago just because we have the internet and we have cars and we have rocket ships. Does that actually make us smarter? A sermon for another day. But we come to scripture and we see that Paul, 2,000 years ago in Corinth, was addressing the very same questions that we have today in 2023 in Northeast Burlington. People haven't changed. The questions remain the same. See, back in Corinth, people were saying the same thing that some of us say. 
doesn't really matter if Jesus was in fact bodily raised from the dead. It matters if you live your life as though that were true. That's the kind of thing they were saying. They'd say things like, well, Jesus, you know, the empty tomb, that's just the pinnacle of the hero archetype story, and it's a great story if you just take the principles and you apply it, but in time and space, in a moment in history, it's irrelevant whether or not he was bodily, physically raised. That's what they were saying. Maybe you hear some echoes of your own thoughts in that. The Corinthians were saying things like what some of us say, which is to hedge our bets. Have you ever heard of Pascal's wager? So Blaise Pascal said this. He said, this is Pascal's wager. He said, I would rather live as though there is a God and find out that there isn't one than to live as though there isn't a God and find out there is. Well, there's something sort of um, alluring about that wager, isn't there? And you can actually see how a, a hedging bet wager like that that hovers around Christianity has actually formed some of the greatest societies in the world here in the West, founded on Judeo-Christian principles, closest approximation to God's good law, the outer trappings of a wager like that that's just sort of hovering around Christian faith has made for a society that is fair and equitable. It's not perfect, but it gets incrementally better all the time. It's caused the innovation that we see and that we thrive from and that our healthcare. All those things are because men and women for a couple hundred years played Pascal's wager and benefited from the peripheral truths of a Christian worldview. And so we hear something like Pascal's wager and, you know, we're kind of like, man, that actually, you know, that doesn't sound bad. Maybe I'll use that when I'm talking to my non-Christian friends. And Paul comes up alongside that argument and gives it the big elbow to the chin body check. He drops it. He rebukes it. Paul hits that argument hard and he says, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, there is no middle ground. There's no playing it safe. It's all or nothing. Look at the sequence of his argument in verses 14 forward. Verse 14, Paul says, it's not enough just to play fast and loose with it, right? He's like, it's binary. Jesus either was raised bodily in time or he wasn't. If you were standing there on that day, what would you have seen? That's how pointed Paul's getting. Verse 14. He says, well, you can't just go halfway measure on this, Paul says, because if Christ was not indeed raised, Paul says, then all of my preaching is in vain. And he says to the Corinthian Christians, and all of your faith is in vain too, if Christ was not actually bodily raised from the dead. Paul's saying, look, if Christ was not actually physically bodily raised from the dead, then I'm just a bunch of hot air and you guys would do better to not set an alarm on Sunday morning and go play golf because it's all a waste. That's how serious Paul takes it. Verse 15. Paul pushes it even further. He's not just going to leave it at vanity and waste. He says, 
if Christ has not been raised, then it's not only a waste, but he goes, I've actually been a fraud. Paul is reflecting on his own encounter with the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. This message that has driven his entire ministry and all of his preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, but if Christ has not been raised, then I'm a liar and no one appeared to me on the Damascus road. I'm a fraud. Worse than hot air. Worse than vanity. Worse than a race of time. If Christ wasn't actually raised. Verses 16 and 17. Paul keeps going. Man, the hits keep coming. He says, oh, and if that wasn't enough, if Christ was not raised, then you won't be raised either. Because you're still dead in your sins and in your trespasses. Man, Paul doesn't shy away from connecting dots that we wish he would just leave alone. He comes back to this argument and he says, if Jesus' body decayed in a tomb outside of Jerusalem, then everything since then has all been one big fraud. All of his claims were empty promises. Here's how the logic goes. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, actually bodily raised, Paul says, then you can have no confidence that the Father accepted his sacrifice on the cross. If you don't believe that Jesus was actually bodily raised from the dead, then your sins still hang over your head. You are not forgiven. And the just penalty for your sin will be demanded from you on the last day when you face the final wrath of God. Death and eternal hell. If Christ was only figuratively raised from the dead, if Christ was only raised from the dead as some sort of hero archetype story that you can live out of without actually believing that it actually happened, then your sins have only been allegorically forgiven. Never been washed away. You still owe a debt that can only paid, be paid by eternity in hell. Christian man or woman, hear this. Easter is not about tulips and bunnies and chocolate and ham. It's no light matter. When we come to this question of the empty tomb and what happened, we are playing for all the marbles. There's no room for fanciness or slipperiness or nuance. Paul says it's either a yes or no and understand what the stakes are. Verse 18. Paul says, oh yeah, not only are you still dead in your sin and you'll never be raised, he says, but if Christ was not raised, you are loaded with your sins and heading to hell, but so too are all of your loved ones who have fallen asleep, if Christ wasn't raised. 
Paul's making this point. Apart from a real, historic, bodily resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, we are hopeless and helpless before God. Verse 19. He concludes this line of thought with this. He's laying out the stakes of Easter and he says, if you claim to be a Christian man or woman, but you reject or slip out from under or swing and whiff on the resurrection of Jesus, Paul says, then your type of so-called Christianity only has anything to say about this life. That's what he's saying. If you're going to play fast and loose at the resurrection, you can still go to church. You can still hold out conservative Christian values. You can still somewhat benefit from it. But you've got nothing but the 80 years you've got on this planet. Nothing. No hope beyond the grave. He goes further. He says, and if that's you, you're pathetic. You're a loser. You're most to be pitied. If that's all you have, Paul says, then you've been duped. And in one sense, you've been robbed of your one and only life. You see, Paul's convinced that an Easterless Christianity is a powerless Christianity, it's a hopeless Christianity. Here's what he's saying this sort of ties into Pascal's wager. We sometimes like to think about it like, well, if I, you know, embrace some of this Christian stuff, it's going to be better than if I don't embrace it all. And see, Paul has no framework for halfway measure Christians. The only reason we allow ourselves that thought is because we have far too an anemic view of the Christian life. When Paul conceives of a Christian man or woman, he thinks of someone who is so all in on the truths of the gospel so 100% committed to Jesus' resurrection and their coming resurrection that they live their life radically different from the world around them. Betting it all on eternity. And he says, if, if, if you're doing that and then you find out that Jesus Christ wasn't raised, then that's the most pitiful thing you could ever imagine. Well, there's an invitation in that too. Imagine what your life would look like if you truly believed that God had raised Jesus from the dead. Imagine that. Why well, I think your life would be marked by a joy-filled confidence that you would fear no one and nothing. You wouldn't even fear the grave. If you truly believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, maybe your life would look like some of the modern missionaries that I read from through Gates of Splendor or to the Golden Shores. These Christian men and women whose hearts were so gripped with the truth of the resurrection of Jesus and the implications that that held for their hope in eternity, that they were willing to put every bit of life, every bit of breath, every dollar, every moment in this eternity, in this present history, and stake it all on the eternal claims of Christ. 
I think if we truly believed that God raised Jesus from the dead, it would be an antidote to so much of the fear-mongering that we've seen over the last couple of years here in the West. Because our fear of death would be gone. In Hebrews chapter 2, the writer of the Hebrews said that about Jesus and his resurrection. He said that Jesus, by his death and resurrection, came to free his people from a lifelong slavery to the fear of death. Paul just keeps hammering this point. It's all or nothing. And if it's all, you have hope beyond the grave. But if it's nothing, then it's you are most to be pitied. Verses 22 to, uh, 20 to 22. So Paul's building this case. He says, if Christ was not raised, then basically you as a Christian man or woman are completely hopeless, completely hopeless. It's a fearful prospect to be sure. And then he says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ was raised from the dead. Look, maybe this morning you're here and you find yourself inching closer to belief in the resurrection. You feel your heart just being tugged a little bit in that direction. Or maybe it's even earlier than that. And you just think to yourself, I'd like to believe. That's not because of persuasive speech. That's the Holy Spirit of God wooing you, causing your dead heart to come alive and showing you the truth of the resurrected Jesus, causing you to be born again. Don't deal lightly with that. But maybe you're here and you think, it's one thing for Paul to claim that Jesus was raised from the dead. How can I know? How can I be sure? Well, there are so many different proofs of the resurrection. I don't want to go into all of them today. I'd recommend to you a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict and another book entitled The Case for Christ. They're really good. I just want you to see three things that can give you certainty of the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, look back to verse 6. Now remember, Paul's writing this to the church in Corinth only 20 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. 20 years. And he writes to the church in Corinth in verse 3, he says, I pass on to you of first importance that which I have received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. What does it then say? That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then look down at verse 6. Paul says, and if you don't believe me, just go ask all the people that he appeared to. They're still alive. It's only 20 years later. Now, doesn't that seem like a bold claim to make if Jesus was not, in fact, raised from the dead? If, if Jesus was not actually raised from the dead and didn't actually appear to these people, surely someone would have called Paul out. But Paul is so confident in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, he says, it's true, go ask them. That's the first thing. The second thing that I think gives us certainty in the resurrection is the unfolding story of the lives of the 12 apostles. 
I want you to consider these men and their lives. These were simple men, blue-collared men, hard-working men. They weren't easily given to fancy or nuance. They had left everything that they had to follow Jesus. They were heartbroken on Good Friday when they watched him die at the point of despair. And then something happened. Something that was so significant that these men, to a man, gave everything that they had in life and even their own deaths, bearing witness to the fact that God had raised Jesus from the dead. Now, if these 12 men were telling a lie about the resurrection of Jesus, surely at the moment of death, they'd have been like, yeah, no. <laughs> That's not what happened. They launched out on a mission following Jesus' great commission to take the authority of the risen Jesus all over the known world because they knew that they saw him die and they saw him come back to life. That's a second way that you can be sure. But listen, the third way is simply this. Flesh and blood cannot ultimately reveal this to you. It's revealed to you by the Holy Spirit. And so if you're here this morning, you'd say, I don't know, R.D., I, I'm struggling with belief on the resurrection, but I'd really like to believe, then the answer is pray. Ask God to grant you the gift of faith to believe so that the Holy Spirit will bear witness to your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Paul has been building this case. He says, your resurrection on the last day and your hope is inextricably linked to whether or not Jesus was raised from the dead. He then goes through a long argument and he says, you can't play fast and loose with it. If Jesus wasn't actually raised from the dead, we have nothing. In fact, less than nothing. We're pitiful. Then he says, but Jesus is raised from the dead. Okay, so you're tracking along with Paul's argument and we come to a close with this. You say, yeah, but I guess, right? Maybe Jesus was truly raised from the dead, but what does that have to do with me? Look at verse 20. I want to show you one word. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The word in the original Greek is the word prolepsis. It's a fun word to say. Do you want to say it? Prolepsis. And back at that time, they were an agrarian society. Everyone were, were, they were all farmers. And this idea of first fruit, of prolepsis, was that God had instructed that these farmers would plant their crops, work their fields, trust him for the increase, when the crops came to fruition, the farmers would go out into the field and they would harvest the first fruits, the first 10%, and they would proleptically offer it to God as a sacrifice. And by offering that first fruits of that harvest to God, the remaining 90% of their crops 
we're proleptically blessed with every blessing of the first 10%. What that means is, Paul is saying, Jesus Christ being resurrected from the dead was not just a one-off. It's not something that God just did for his favorite son. It was a first fruit offering, and you are the remaining 90%. Every blessing that is bestowed upon Jesus Christ, every blessing of new life and eternal life and relationship with the Father that is bestowed upon him as the first fruit is now proleptically yours. God has raised Jesus from the dead, and in so doing, he has secured your resurrection too. That's what it matters to you. Verses 21 and 22. Paul says, For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Here's the second thing that means to you. It means that because God raised Jesus from the dead, you are no longer in Adam, but in Christ. You see, scriptures record the story of faithless Adam, who failed in the Garden of Eden and became the progenitor of all of humanity. But scripture also tells us that where Adam failed in the Garden of Eden, launching humanity on a trajectory of sin and death. Jesus Christ was faithful in the Garden of Gethsemane, rescuing his people from sin to life. Paul's saying, look, you were once all part of Adam's race. You were by nature living lives that were marked by sin and ending in death. But God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicated his offering on that Good Friday for you and in your place. You're no longer in Adam and in death, but you are in Christ and in life. There's been a change of your spiritual DNA. You've been given a new family name. The empty tomb of on Easter Sunday secures this. You're not in Adam anymore. You're in Christ. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. You're not the person you used to be. Because God raised Jesus from the dead, Paul says that God looks at you and no longer sees you in your sin, in your shortcomings, and in your wickedness and in your foibles. God looks at you and he no longer sees that. That's who you used to be in Adam. But because God raised Jesus from the dead, now God looks at you and you are in Christ. He looks at you and he sees you washed white in the blood of the Lamb. He sees you wrapped and clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. Because of the resurrection, God looks at you and he doesn't see your failures. He sees Jesus Christ. You're in Christ. You're not bound by your genetics or your family of origin. You're in Christ. You're a new creation. 
So today you're wondering and thinking, how can I lay hold and lay claim to those promises of God that are mine in the resurrection? Far too long people go to church and stop there. Far too long people enjoy Christian fellowship and stop there. When the proleptic blessings of God in Christ, in his resurrection, are yours. You just need to be born again. You need to be saved. And how are you going to do that? Well, Paul says in Romans 10, Listen, this is for you today. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, on this Easter Sunday, I pray that your Holy Spirit would cause dead people to come to life. You would grant us the gift of faith by your Spirit to be born again. To confess with our mouths, Jesus, you are Lord. You are risen from the dead. I believe it in my heart. And so to be transferred from Adam and all of his death into the risen Christ and eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.